0: Hey, Crimes of the Century's listeners, we are launching a brand new podcast at the Obsessed Network today called Murder and Alliance. In the podcast, investigative journalist Maggie Freeling reinvestigates the 1999 murder of Yvonne Lane. Though her ex-boyfriend David Thorne was convicted of the murder, Evidence points to his innocence. Now, 20 years later, Maggie travels to my backyard in Ohio to talk with people involved in the case, explore new leads, and try to identify what really happened to Yvonne. You guys, this is really going to be an interesting case. I've been helping edit on this podcast and Maggie is doing some fantastic work. So we've got the first episode right here and there are two more full episodes of Murder and Alliance already available right now wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: is July 14th, 1999. Wednesday, it's 13.09 hours. My name is Detective Bud Sampson. We're in the Ravenna Police Department interview room. Along with me is Detective William Mucklow and Detective John Leach of the Alliance Police Department. Also in the room is Joseph Isaac Wilkes. Okay, we're investigating the homicide of Yvonne Lane. Can you tell us your part in this?
2: The tape you're listening to is Joe Wilkes, a 19 year old boy confessing to murder
1: she was like hey what are you doing here she goes i haven't seen you in a long time i was like oh david just wanted me to stop by and see how things were and then we were sitting there talking for about three to five minutes and then
0: i i did it okay i know this is going to be hard
1: but we got to go through and you tell me what happened here <laughs> Where were you sitting? Were you sitting upstairs or downstairs? We were, we are on the second floor, not the third one. Okay. And we were sitting on the couch talking, and
0: I'm man. Okay.
1: okay. Did she get up and try to run? No, well, she tried to run out the door. What door did she try to run out? Of? The big glass door that slides, and then <laughs>
2: This is Murder and Alliance, an active investigation into who killed Yvonne Lane. I'm Maggie Freeling. April 1st, 1999, 26-year-old Yvonne Lane was found with her throat slashed, dead in her home in Alliance, Ohio.
1: 26-year-old Yvonne Lane, a beautiful, vivacious woman found in a pool of her own blood. Her throat slashed while her children slept.
2: She was discovered by her mother, who had arrived to take her six-year-old grandchild to kindergarten. Yvonne was a mother to five kids, David Thorne was the father of one of the children, although he and Yvonne were not together anymore.
1: The murder of a mother of five in her own home stunned the small town of Alliance, Ohio.
2: David had recently been ordered to pay child support, and in his confession, Joe said that he was hired by David Thorne to kill Yvonne so he didn't have to pay.
1: The father of one of the children. The motive? Child support. Thorne was ordered to pay.
2: To the untrained listener, this seems like a pretty clear-cut case someone confessing, and a good motive. But when you start digging and talking to people and going through documents, the more complicated things get. And it seems like everyone around Yvonne had a motive to kill her. I first came across the case on the website Injustice Anywhere, which has since become a staple for my research into lesser-known wrongful conviction cases for my other podcast, Unjust and Unsolved. I covered an episode a week telling the stories of people who I believed were wrongfully convicted. David was one of them. One of the incredible things to me about David's case is that it actually wasn't unknown. There had been other media coverage before.
1: The attack grabbed headlines as police hunted for a killer.
2: Dwayne Pullman, who you just heard in the previous clips, is an investigative journalist who looked into the case for three years. And at the center of his investigation...
1: A very serious question. Did the system convict the wrong men?
2: However, that was over a decade ago. And there's been no movement since... I said in David's episode of Unjust and Unsolved that this case deserves its own long form investigation. Not just 20 minutes or 40 minutes. So here we are. Since Yvonne's murder, David has continually and persistently said he had no involvement. He says he never paid Joe Wilkes or anyone to murder his ex girlfriend. David was on the homepage of Injustice Anywhere as one of their endorsed cases, so I clicked it. And I could not believe what I was seeing. When you make it to David's official website, wcodt.org, you discover first that this was an incredibly brutal murder.
1: She uh, begins to spurt blood, uh, uh, pumping blood uh, violently out out of her neck.
2: Yvonne's throat was slit to the spine. She was almost decapitated. Blood was all over the house. The living room where her body was found looks like someone took buckets and buckets of blood and threw it around the room. It just didn't look like a hit or a random murder to me. This looked personal. Police had to process this absolute mess of a room, which I'm sure was not easy, especially because they also had to get four of her kids out of the house, because all but one of her children were home when she was murdered. So some flubs may be understandable in the investigation, but not to the extent that happened here. Police say they covered Yvonne's body with a blanket pulled from her bedroom, potentially contaminating any evidence on her body. No one wore shoe coverings or gloves to preserve evidence. Investigators went back and forth, stepping over Yvonne's body when crossing the room, potentially contaminating the crime scene. And one bloody footprint between her legs is caught in photographs coming from a detective. The chief of the department even brought his date into the crime scene. It was an absolute disaster. Evidence was collected from the scene and allegedly never tested. And yet, the case still made it to trial thanks to Joe's confession. At trial, the prosecutor said that David hired Joe to kill Yvonne. And as you heard, Joe agreed. He said David gave him $300 to kill her. After his confession, Joe took the police to the alleged murder weapon a 3.1-inch pocket knife, and where he said he disposed of his pants in the woods. Rose Moore, the state's other star witness, also said she saw Joe the night of the murder, and he told her that he was on his way to kill someone. That's pretty damning. But it's worth noting that there was no evidence linking Joe to the scene, much less David. The entire case rested on witness testimony. But some witnesses were never even called, like a neighbor who saw a man leaving Yvonne's house in the morning after her murder, who said that the man was not David or Joe.
1: I was not asked to testify in the trial of David Thorne. I was shown a photo of David Thorne in December of 2000 It was not the man I saw leaving the residence in 916 I was shown a photo of Joseph Wilkes, the confessed murderer, In December of two thousand, it was not the man I saw leaving the residents of of 960. Neither one of those three that she showed you was was said at all. Uh,
2: But the jury never heard this. However, after deliberation, David was convicted on January twenty fifth, two thousand, of hiring Joe to kill Yvonne. He was sentenced. To life without the possibility of parole. Joe took a plea deal of 32 life for his cooperation.
1: It didn't take a jury long to convict David Thorne. Wilkes pleaded guilty. Both are now serving life sentences.
2: But was Joe lying? And if he was, why? He lost almost as much as David did. Evidence uncovered in later investigations could point to another killer, like any one of the other men who fathered Yvonne's other four kids, or even members of law enforcement Yvonne was rumored to be sleeping with, or the creepy neighbor that would spy on Yvonne through her window.
1: This case is filled with sex, secrets, and surprises.
2: As Dwayne Pullman just said, this case is a roller coaster, and things only got more complicated when I talked to David.
3: All right, you there? Yep, you oh, hear sorry. me? I can hear you. I'm a little loud, but that's fine. Okay. Um, so,
2: so, how are
3: you doing today? Uh, not too bad. When
2: I first spoke to David, he had done 21 years, almost half of his life in prison, and there seemed to be no hope left.
1: Pretty much dead in the water. We need new evidence.
2: David didn't have a lawyer anymore, he ran out of money in all of his first appeals. And like any wrongful conviction case, he needs a lawyer and an investigator to find new evidence if he has any chance of getting out.
3: That's why we've been pushing so hard is to find a private investigator that would kind of go ahead and, and kind of almost start the case anew.
2: And that's proven difficult to find. After talking to David and reviewing case files, I had enough questions about his conviction that I couldn't let it go. And I haven't even done a super deep dive yet. I covered his case in a 40-minute episode, basically just on the documents that I was given. And I just kept thinking... There really needs to be an in-depth investigation. How is this not a feature documentary? There is so much to get into, so much scandal and intrigue, things I wasn't even able to broach in those 40 minutes that shook me to my core. After David's episode came out, I stewed on it for months. It haunted me. Who did the witness see leaving Yvonne's house in the morning? What happened to the evidence collected at the scene? There was a knife with a fingerprint, condoms and wrappers, blood smears everywhere. Was any of it tested? And if so, it must not have matched David and Joe. Otherwise, it reasonably would have been presented in court and the prosecution would have had a slam dunk. So who did it match? Could Joe have been involved but not David? I kept stewing. Anytime TV producers would reach out about Unjust and Unsolved, I would talk about David. I would talk about it to everyone. I even reached out to producers and podcasters on my own, looking for anyone who wanted to deep dive into this murder case. It consumed me for months as I tried to figure out any way to help David. And then an opportunity arose. In October, I flew down to Austin, Texas for Wrongful Conviction Day, a day that raises awareness about wrongful convictions. I was meeting with Jason Baldwin, from the West Memphis Three.
1: West Memphis, Arkansas, 1994. They were convicted of murdering three Boy
4: Scouts, hog-tied yeah. and left in a ditch.
1: A satanic cult, a oh. demonic ritual, fueling the town's bloodlust with descriptions of sexual torture and mutilation. Today,
4: the West
2: Memphis Three walked free. We did a Facebook Live together. Yeah, now, oh, and then people could see comments.
4: Yeah. Okay. Okay.
2: okay. Hello everyone, we are live. I am here, Maggie Freeling in Austin, and I am with Jason Baldwin of the West Memphis Three, who was convicted in 1994, released in 2011. He is also the- Jason now has his own organization, helping to free the wrongfully convicted. What makes you want to continue doing this work literally immediately upon getting out? Well,
4: yeah, you know, I've always been a volunteer, a person who helps other people. And so to experience wrongful conviction as an innocent person and have that experience and then to get out because people cared enough to fight for my freedom almost felt like a duty I had to repay that.
2: Jason co-founded Proclaim Justice with his friend and private investigator John Harden.
4: Should I keep chewing while you're recording? (laughs)
2: After the Facebook Live, I got to work with Jason and John on a few cases they were investigating that I plan to cover for season one.
4: Yeah, that works. Let me go get a laptop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, do you need documents? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I may need yeah. some notes. Like,
2: <laughs> yeah. like, wow, you were very, have it all together. So. We went over Nikki Zinger and Daniel Rischer's case.
4: In the span of a month, a murderer took her mother away, and then the state took her love away.
2: Diamantina Salinas Calahaco and Andreas Mascaro.
4: There's only two possibilities here. There's only two. Either somebody is feeding him all of those details, or he was there. That's it. Those are the only two possibilities.
2: And DeMarco Wilson.
4: There should be no gunshot residue. Well, we have gunshot residue on the victim's jacket. Um, So how do you get gunshot residue when, when you're shooting from that far?
2: We went through files, and they talked me through the details of their investigation into each case. It was surreal. Not only to be in Austin on Wrongful Conviction Day with Jason Baldwin, but to sit down with John to see the work they are doing to help free people who are wrongfully incarcerated and the passion that they have doing it. And the days in Austin weren't just work. John and Jason are genuinely cool people. And I got to know them during an after-work drink or four.
4: My brothers, Matt and Terry, like had me and my mom stand Back to back with our, so we could see who was taller yeah. on my 16th birthday. And they're like, oh, mom, Jason's almost as tall as you now, you know, and, you know, just having that family time. And then uh, got arrested, you know, a couple months later.
2: Every day of that trip, as I got to know them better, I kept thinking, are these the guys that David has been waiting for? Is there an appropriate time to bring up this case to them? I didn't want to be that person who unsolicitedly asked these busy and in-demand guys with a wait list of cases to look at another case like some personal favor. But this wasn't just a favor. It was someone's life, a man who has spent over 20 years in prison and believes there is no hope left for him. And I was determined to get him help. One evening, we were having after-work drinks, and I was feeling good and broached the topic. You know, there's this really crazy case I'm looking into. You guys might be interested. We talked a Little, and I told them that the most heartbreaking part is it's been almost 22 years, and he said his case is dead in the water. They seemed interested, but I didn't want to push it. Maybe they were just being nice to their out-of-town guest. I planted the seed and went about our evening, but I would revisit. I left Austin and went back to New York and stayed in touch about the cases I was working on that they gave me. All right, well, I got to run. Can you send me the um, the overview of, of yes. the witnesses?
4: Yeah, I sure will.
2: Awesome. Thank you, John. I'll talk to you All soon.
4: Right. All right. Bye.
2: I don't know when or how, but at some point I must have said to John, look, I think you guys really should look at the files. Bold. But I wanted to know if he would see what I saw a total mess of an investigation and potential to help someone who may be wrongfully incarcerated. I don't know why, but he agreed. Maybe because they really had nothing to lose. An incredibly generous listener of Unjust and Unsolved felt so compelled by David's story, she offered to fund their investigation. So I sent over the thousands of pages of case file documents and then waited waited for them to have a moment in their busy days working dozens of other cases to review David's file. And by December, they did.
4: Miss America. Hello. What's up?
2: Hi. John brought on another private investigator from Proclaim Justice to help, Danny Waxler. Oh, it's sunny. It's sunny down there. It's
3: spicy out there. Wow. Hey. <laughs> Y'all come down.
1: Y'all come on.
2: Danny has been an investigator for decades, and he's like a hawk on a case. We all got on a Zoom call together, including David from prison and his wife, Sue, so John and Danny could let us know what they were thinking.
4: There's Sue. Hi, Sue.
2: Hi. From the jump, it seems like they were into it and definitely up for the challenge that I think over the years, other investigators and lawyers found too complicated. Even if there were forensics that could be tested, it still wouldn't exonerate David. By all accounts, David was not at the crime scene. It was an alleged murder for hire. So freeing David would be difficult. It would come down to proving that Joe was also not there.
3: The more we can dismantle Joseph for Joe, whatever he goes by, the the stronger plight we have
1: in freeing David.
2: If Joe didn't commit the murder, then the prosecution's whole case falls apart against David. But Joe said he did it. And that is hard to get past. Over the years, Joe has given multiple statements about what happened. His story constantly changes. And we'll get more into this later. In one story, David hires him to kill Yvonne. In another, he shows up there to invite her to a hotel party he was having— and she's already dead. And in 2001, just a year after his conviction, he even recanted his hitman for higher confession and said he was pressured by police and coached what to say to implicate David.
1: Scared and confused, Wilkes says this former detective, John Leach, forced him to confess. Wilkes was a friend of David Thorn's. And they had told me a general story about how to put David in it. Maggie, did you reach out to Joe?
2: I did not because I also, I just didn't want to really tamper with anything. Um, I did not reach out to him. I didn't reach out to Joe because I didn't want to engage in any kind of perceived witness tampering because in my mind, this case wasn't dead in the water. It was going to go back to court and I didn't want to mess anything up. And I'm glad I didn't because it seems like Joe is really the key to cracking the entire story.
3: You know, I'd like David to tell us if he was our newest investigator, how would he approach this? It's always good to hear from our clients on what their own thoughts are, how they would proceed with about what we're about to launch ourselves into. I mean, the, the thing that comes to the forefront of mine is Joe's timeline.
2: Different accounts and witnesses put Joe at multiple places at once. So which version of the story is true? We will definitely get in depth into Joe's timeline later. But based on a preliminary look at the case, John and Danny wanted to know more. They didn't officially agree to take David's case, but they were ready to go to Ohio and start digging to see what they found. Then they decide if the case was worth pursuing. As for me, I made another bold move and suggested that I help as well as document the investigation and cover it for a new podcast solely focused on reinvestigating the murder of Yvonne Lane. Again, for whatever reason, they agreed. And we were all going to hit the ground in Ohio.
0: Okay,
4: (laughs) well, let's... um... We'll, like I said, we'll stay in touch as needed and and as things come into focus as far as what we want to get accomplished there and time frame and all that stuff, um, but we will plan on being there two weeks from today. Cool, guys. Okay, we'll regroup and be back in touch. All right, bye. Bye, guys. Good to see you. You too.
2: Two weeks, we'd be in Alliance, Ohio, starting the investigation into Yvonne's murder from scratch exactly what David said he needed to move his case forward. What would we find? There were so many questions as Danny and John poured through the case files trying to find out where to start.
4: So in the first statement that he gave, that we have any record, did he say that it was a lock blade knife that he used to kill her?
2: They sent me a recording of their discussion a chunk of which I'm sharing here, because I want you to hear how they approach the case, what stood out to them right away. I find it fascinating. You can hear how they're skeptical. They're not focused on clearing David. Really, they're focused on finding the truth.
3: You know, I'll say that we take... You know, in in taking this case, I think one of the first things we always have to do is say, what do we believe was the most significant part of what convicted our client? Yeah, yeah. And we know, just even if it's just preliminary research, we know it was the statement of Joseph Wilkes.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's not
3: like there's an abundance, there's no biological evidence.
4: You know, right off the bat, a couple of things that raise my eyebrows are the knife in the pants— How did Joe lead them to the. What were the circumstances? Um, Was it confirmed to be the murder weapon with any kind of forensic or biological testing or anything like that? And if it was the murder weapon and Joe did lead them there, then that's a big fucking deal. You know, just on its face, that's one that I'm going to have to have a satisfactory answer to. How did Joe take them to that knife. That's that's a hell of a thing right there. That's one of those coincidences that I don't like. i
3: thought about that. You know, what if... Let's just say Joe did this. Yeah. Because there are things that make you say, well, the pants, the knife, he had familiarity. Why is he staying at a freaking hotel in town that night? Yeah. Why is there documented a receipt to confirm that. Yeah.
4: Joe's got some explaining to do. I mean, it's not cut and dry that he's lying. There's some real questions that I'm going to have to get some satisfactory answers to. I mean, these are all good questions and we're just going to have to see where it all takes us.
2: And we did. We left for Ohio two weeks later to start to figure out, is David innocent? And if so, who did kill Avon Lane? Coming up on Murder and Alliance. Okay,
4: we're investigating the homicide of Avon. She actually cheated on him a couple of times. In terms of the police
1: force, my God, I had eight or nine names of officers who were potential sexual partners.
0: She said she was murdered, and I I, I mean, you could have just knocked me over. Any
1: number of people could have been a suspect. He was seen by a neighbor standing at
0: her front door at 5.30, and the time of death is 7.00. He said that they put him in a room and they chained him to the wall by his arm and bit on him and they told him that they wanted him to confess. The guy I knew that came into the post office that threw up his hand and waved and grinned all the time and he's just the nicest guy ever. I thought, no, this can't be.
1: Brent Turvey, a nationally known criminal forensics expert, picked apart what he calls a botched case.
3: I'm curious. Why does she know so many cops? You never
0: asked about that or wondered about it?
1: The officers were involved in nefarious activity, criminal activity.
0: The fact that it was never turned over to the defense is shocking.
1: The police controlled the narrative. I cannot get to the truth. Did you know who he identified?
0: No, I don't. It
1: was a police officer.
0: It's like, no, something's missing here. Why didn't the prosecution turn this over? What is going on here? So it makes me feel like there's more to the story.
4: And although you thought that the evidence proved it, I know in my heart and soul I did not do this.
2: y'all, if you like this show, please consider joining the Unjust and Unsolved Patreon. It shows how much you care and helps us continue to tell these stories. Plus, you get some awesome bonus episodes, q and a 's, and events as a thank you. And please, please rate and review. The more reviews, the more attention and the more likely we're going to get tips and leads and the right ears will be reached. Murder in Alliance is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. Aaron Case is our legal intern, and Bob Mallory is our engineering assistant. For more information and resources, go to MurderInAlliance.com. You can find Murder in Alliance on Twitter and Instagram at Murder underscore Alliance and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Murder in Alliance is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at ObsessedNetwork.com.
0: Thanks for checking out the first episode of Murder and Alliance. There are two more available to listen to right now, and episodes will drop every Thursday morning. Go find Murder and Alliance wherever you listen to your podcasts.